There's one word in English that's kind of an ugly word, and that word is hypocrisy. Um, We don't like that word. And being called a hypocrite is something that can be a really tough thing to to listen to. It can be a tough thing for us to hear if someone uh, calls us that. That, Somehow that's one of those things that really uh, kind of troubles us. Interestingly, Jesus had the boldness to use that word. He was pretty clear that uh, in calling out the hypocrites when he saw them. We might not want to use that word because it's kind of an, uh, an ugly word and it seems kind of harsh and uh, condemning. And so we, we, we come up with other idioms, other phrases to kind of express the same thing, but without being quite so harsh. So we, we might say we need to walk the talk, or walk the walk and talk the talk. And the earliest, uh, looking at this, the earliest usage of that phrase is from a, an, uh, a newspaper in Ohio in 1921, and it's talking about someone who, um, and the, 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 the sentence goes, Although he has no gilded medals upon his bosom, Howard Herring of the North American Watch Company walks the walk and talks the talk of a hero today. So this is uh, going back uh, almost uh, 100 years. So this is a, a phrase that's around, and we know what it means. It means we don't be a hypocrite. When we say something, we do it. And we live out the things that we're saying. The Apostle Paul wants us to walk the talk, and to, uh, to live out the message of Jesus Christ, to live out the Gospel in our lives, to be consistent in what we believe, what we say, and what we do. What we tell others to do, we should do ourselves. And so he gives us an example of himself often as someone who walks the walk and talks the talk, who lives out the message of the Gospel. And here as we look today in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter three, we'll see Paul, and he gives some instructions, and he is telling people what to do. But he also says he himself did those very things. He walked the walk, he talked the talk, he lived out the message, and so he's not asking anybody to do anything that he himself did not do. And so let's read Second Thessalonians chapter three. As for other matters, brothers and sisters. Pray with us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. 
We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times and in every way the Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all of my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that You would take Your Word and put it in our hearts, put it in our minds, that it may change us, transform us, and help us to be like Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul starts out finally, or as for other matters, or some translations would say furthermore. So he's continuing on in his message. And this is one of those places where uh, if you take out the chapter and verse divisions and just read it, it reads much more smoothly. It reads like what it is, a letter from Paul to the church at Thessalonica. And so Paul begins this, uh, uh, this part of his letter with, with some words. Finally, uh, uh, as for other matters, uh, furthermore. So there's other issues that he needs to discuss. So remember last week when we were looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he was talking about the second coming of Christ and how some had deceived them about uh, the second coming. When it was going to happen and who it was going to be and what, what it was, how it was all going to unfold. And now he, he's saying, no, there's some other things I need to talk to you about as well. And so he, he, he says these are, these are some of the things that, uh, that, that we need to also need to address. And so what is, he's about to delve into three particular issues in particular that he's uh, mentioning here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And these are all concrete activities. These are all things that people can do. These are all straightforward, easy things that he wants uh, people to do. And so he's giving some very clear instructions. This is, this is what I want you to do. This is what I'm asking you to do. He's not taking time here at this point to delve into deep theological mysteries. He's not trying to explain uh, some of the mysteries of the faith and some of the deep concepts that he himself understands. But he says, here's some practical things for you to do. Some things that he presumably heard about or saw that was happening in the church there, and he says, I need to address these things. And so look at how he uses a word there, the word command. He uses it in verses 4. He says, uh, continue to do the things we command. In verse 6, we command you, brothers and sisters. In verse 10, and some translations might not have the command, but might, the word command, but might have rule. He says, we gave you this rule or this command. And then again in verse 12, uh, he says, we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ. This word, it's a, it's a strong word. A command, as you see there, it's an authoritative order. A decree, a directive. <clears throat> when we think of the word command, we don't think of it as sort of a, a casual request. It's not something that, uh, that he's saying, well, 
why don't you consider this? But it's, it's, very, it's coming with a great deal of authority. It's coming with some power that's saying this is what you should do. He's not really asking for debate, discussion about this. He's saying, I am telling you, this is what you should do. The, in, in the Greek there, this word that, that comes across to us as command actually has a, is a form of the word of angel, which is a, a messenger from God. And then it, 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 it's, it's a messenger that's coming with authority and coming with power. And so this, this is what he's trying to communicate here. Paul uses in all of his letters and all of his writings, Paul uses this word 15 times. And right here in this one chapter are four occurrences of that. So it's just interesting to see that the, the authority that Paul is trying to stress here, the strength of this command that he's trying to communicate in these three things. Clearly Paul had something important to say. He wanted it to be clear. He wanted it to be obeyed. This is not something that he wanted to have a long discussion about. But he was saying, this is what you should do. And, he's, and so, here are the three things that he says. He one says, you should pray, you should work, and correct. And you see the, the various references there. So let's take a look at these three things. The first one is in verses 1-5. to five. And Paul says, you should pray. He asks for prayer. He says, pray for us. And so he starts out saying, I want, I'm asking. He's asking them to pray for them. Uh, to pray for him and uh, presumably his uh, companions, Silas and Timothy. Uh, it seems that we uh, read about uh, Silas and Timothy being with Paul uh, at this point in Acts chapter 18, verse 5. We can read about uh, Silas and Timothy being with Paul. And so he's saying, uh, pray for us. So it's not just him, but, but all of uh, the, the ones who were with Paul. And he's asking, uh, he's asking for prayer for them. And he's, he wants this prayer to be for the message of the Lord that they're carrying. So they are recognized as the ones who are bringing this message of the Lord to different people in different parts of the world. And he's praying for this message uh, that it would spread. That it would go with power and authority. It would be honored wherever it is uh, that they are preaching this message. And so he's asking them to pray but when you look at it, interesting, he's not praying actually for himself. He's praying, he's asking them to pray for the message that they have. So he's not even asking so much for himself, uh, but, but for the message. He, he does in verse 2 also ask, he goes on and he asks that, that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men. Uh, so he does, he does throw in a request that they have for themselves as well. So there's two aspects to the, of the prayer there. One, that the message would go forward. The other, that he was looking, asking for protection. But Paul doesn't spend too much time actually talking about himself. He goes on in, in verses 1-5 to five when you see it at verse 3. He turns and he talks uh, to them. He gives them a, a, a message. He's, he, asks, he says, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful to you. That, that God is going to strengthen and protect them uh, from the evil one. And that they, the things that they have been doing, that they will continue to do it. Isn't it interesting that when Paul stops and asks for prayer, 
First of all, he asked for prayer, not for himself, but for the message, for the work that God has for them, that it would go forward. And then he does give a little request for himself. But then see how quickly he turns. And his, his heart is there with the church. It's not focused on himself, but it's there for the church. And he quickly turns and wants to talk about what's going on with the church at Thessalonica. That they would be strengthened and encouraged and helped along this way. So Paul asked for prayer. But the prayer is not much about him. And we can take that as an example to us. Paul is asking the church in Thessalonica to pray for him, pray for this message. And, you know, when we think of, of prayer requests for, ours, uh, for ourselves, it's an encouragement to us to think beyond the horizon, to think beyond the horizon of ourselves and look and say, what in the bigger world is a matter of importance? Our needs can be important, and we do want people, we do want people to be praying one for another. And that's a, that's a good thing. That should be happening in our church. We should be praying and taking that time to pray for one another. But we should also be concerned and praying for things outside of ourselves as well. We know Paul set the example in prayer. Often his letters start with something like, how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. So Paul is asking for prayer, but in other places and even in, in 2 Thessalonians, he talks about how he prays for people. He's showing us by example that he is praying. He's praying for all kinds of things. He's praying for the people that he are on his hearts, for the churches that he's planted, for the persecutions, the trials, troubles they're going through. And then he asks us to pray as well. We can pray. The way that Paul asked the church at Thessalonica to pray for him, we can be praying for one another. We can be praying that the Gospel would go forward. The second thing that he spends a lot of time on here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is he talks about work. He says he has two things to say about work. The first one is to stay away from those who are idle and disruptive. And he mentions that twice, uses that phrase twice. He says uh, uh, those who are idle, who do not live according to the teaching that they received or who are disruptive. And so... This idleness. The, the ones who aren't working, he says, stay away from them. Not working is not good, is basically what Paul is saying here. We need to work. Work is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with work. It can be a hard thing at times. It can be a stressful thing. It might be a frustrating thing, the work we have to do. But not working is not good. God wants us to work. That's part of, of what He wants us to do. He says those disruptive ones, in verse 11, He says those disruptive ones are not busy. They are busybodies. Interesting use of, uh, of, of words there. So it might be one thing if those who are idle just sat around and did nothing. But it doesn't seem that that's what was happening. It seems that they were causing some trouble. They were going around gossiping and getting involved in other people's business when it really was no business of theirs to get involved in. They were causing problems. And this is not how it should be. It's bad enough in a way saying it's bad enough you're not working, but then you're going around and you're poking your nose in other people's business. And he says this is not how it should be. And he says not only is not working good, but we are to stay away from those 
who are not working. So, so we shouldn't be even associating with those who are sitting around um, being idle. For a few months in uh, some part of my misspent youth, I was hanging around with a bunch of guys, uh, some of whom worked and some of them who were idle, just seemingly like uh, what uh, Paul is describing here. They were idle and disruptive, causing trouble and getting into trouble. And let me assure you from my experience that the idle and disruptive guys had far more impact on the guys that were working than the other way around. The guys who were working looked at the guys who were idle and said, I would rather do that than go to work. It wasn't ever, I don't think, that the idle guys who were sitting around and doing nothing ever looked at the guys who were working and saying, maybe I should go get a job. Maybe I should go do something with my life. It seemed to be always the desire was the other way, to go the other way around. That the guys who were working aspired to be more like the guys who were idle than the ones than the idle ones aspired to be like the ones who were working. It seemed, I guess, like it was a lot more fun to sit around home and get out, get into all kinds of trouble than uh, than actually to get up in the morning and go off to a job. And so I think this is what Paul is 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 saying here is that this is actually going to be. Uh, it's, it's going to be negative. If you hang around with the idol, that idleness may rub off on you. And so he says, don't have anything to do with those. Because it's going to be an, an, have a negative impact on you, but it's also not what God wants. God wants us to be working. And so Paul commands those, and he uses that word in verse 12. He says, such people, those idol ones, we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. He's commanding them. He's telling them, this is what you should do. Paul commands them to settle down and, uh, and uh, work. So Paul also says in this passage, in this part here, that we are to follow his example and to go to work. Verse 7, Paul says, For you yourselves know how we ought how you ought to follow our example. So he uses those very words. Follow his example. We were not idle when we were with you. So they worked. And he's saying, follow my example. Look at what I did. Look at how I worked. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so Paul sets himself up and he says, look, look at how I'm how I'm living. Look at how, what I'm doing. You can follow my example. And so, again, here in Second Thessalonians 3, he says, follow my example. Work. Because that's what I did. So even though he, Paul says he had the authority to have the church look after him, and we see that in verse 9, he says, we did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model or an example for you to follow. So he could have. He could have said to the church, look, I'm here, I'm the Apostle Paul, I'm the one who's in authority, um, I'm, I'm the one who's planting this church, I'm the one who's starting it, uh, I'm, one of the, I'm one of the senior people in this movement that's uh, called Christianity, he might not have used that term, but uh, I'm, I'm a senior person in this, you need to look after me. He says he had the, the authority, he had the right to do that, but he chose not to. Instead, he just chose to work. Because he wanted to be an example. He wanted to live out the message that he had for them. And he wanted himself to be an example for them. 
When we look in, back in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, we see that Paul was a tent maker, as were uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And so we see that uh, uh, Luke in Acts chapter 18 records for us this, this fact. It says in, Luke chapter, or in Acts chapter 18, uh, verse, let's start in verse 2, he says, There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul was a tent maker. And when he went to, uh, to, to Corinth, he met up with a couple of other tent makers. He lived with them and they worked together. They made tents. It does, it does go on to say that when Silas and Timothy finally joined him, uh, then he went into full-time preaching and teaching, presumably because Silas and Timothy went to work doing whatever they did to support the three of them, along with Priscilla and Aquila who were making tents. And it seems a reasonable thing that, that Paul must have done this in Thessalonica as well. When he went there, he, started his, he picked up his trade. He went and he did his tent making, whatever that might have looked like. Because he didn't want to be a burden. He wanted to set an example. And it was not just a, a, a very basic example, but Paul, he says, he worked night and day. He toiled and labored. Um, he, uh, he worked hard at this. So even though it was his work and he was really concerned uh, really more about planting the church, he fully engaged with the work he needed to do. This work is a good thing. Right from the beginning of creation, says God wants us to work. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And this is even before the fall, even before a sin entered the world. Work was good. Work was something that God wanted, uh, wanted people to do. It was only after the fall that work really became difficult. We read that it, it talks about the thorns and, and thistles came along for Adam and Eve to contend with as they were doing the work. So when there's a thorn or a thistle at work, you can blame Adam and Eve. When work is hard, that's because of sin. So, but work is a good thing. And we need to be doing it. We need to be active in it. In Colossians 3.23, Paul says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. So it doesn't really matter what you do it, because you can look at it and you can say, I'm doing this for God. And that makes it a good thing. So it's not the work itself that's important, but it's your attitude towards it. What is my attitude towards this work? Do I see whatever I'm doing, whatever my hand finds to do, do I see it as a way of serving God? And when you do that, when you say, I'm serving God in this, whatever I'm doing, it's a good thing. And it, it will bring joy. When we look at work, work, we see that work won't end. It won't be the, the, the end of, uh, the, there won't be an end to the work we do. But it will be redeemed by Christ's second coming. It won't be a burden anymore, but it will be a joy. When you look ahead and you look at the end of the book of Revelation, you get this image of a, of a tree, of a garden. We are back in a garden, a, a remade garden. 
I suppose at that point we will be back in the garden. We'll be walking with God day by day. We'll be worshiping Him. And we'll be working. We'll be tending the garden. A friend of mine suggested that maybe we'll be polishing the streets of gold. Maybe that will be our our work. We don't know. But I'm pretty sure that we will be working in some way. It won't be a burden, but it will be a joy because we'll be serving God in His presence. As I was thinking about this, though, I was thinking it's probably not a real big problem amongst our group here of being idle and not working. In fact, I was thinking maybe one of the things that might be more of a problem is that it becomes an idol in our life. That our work is becoming an idol in our life. Something we worship. It becomes something more important in our life than even God Himself. Our problem is not with idleness of doing nothing, but our problem might be in doing too much. And in, in, in the case of, of our work, that becomes something that we live our life for. It becomes where we get our validation as a person because I'm doing a good job. It becomes where we see ourselves as being valued. I'm worth something here because I get paid to do this. And so someone is recognizing that I am of some value to them. And that's where we start to derive our value from. Instead of deriving our value from the fact that we are God's children and God loves us and cares for us and gave His Son for us. And I'm not judging anybody here, but uh, because I'm kind of the same on this. You know, uh, what is your work? What, what would you say if I asked you, you know, who are you? Describe yourself to me. I would probably be the same as anybody else. I'd probably give you my name. Then I might tell you what I do for a living because that becomes so much of my identity. So, There's nothing wrong with work. Work is good. But just like everything God has given us, there can be something good in it, but there can also be something bad. And so we can take that work, that work that is good, and we can turn it into something that takes God's place in our lives. So we need to be careful about that. Jeff Hannan writes uh, a blog about faith and work, and he suggests, Three signs that we've made work an idol. Exhaustion. We're always busy and we're always tired. Fear. What if I don't succeed? Pride. It's a chance to prove our worth. It's worth reading this. If you think this might be a problem for you, that you're thinking that this is taking too much of my time, this is a, uh, if you look at these and you see one or two or three of these, it might be worth going and reading his article and checking out his blog and and thinking about uh, your relationship with work. But Paul does want us to work. Then the last thing he says is you should correct people. He says, uh, correct them in verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter or our commands, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Paul certainly was one for correction. When you read all of Paul's letters, you see Paul never shied away from uh, telling people what they needed to do and how they needed to change. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he calls them out 
for sexual immorality. And he says, some of you are even sleeping with your father's wife. And you think this is a good thing. So Paul didn't hesitate to point it out to them. Some were exercising the freedom that they have in Christ to, uh, to do things that were causing others to stumble. Others in the body of Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he calls them out and he says, look, you guys are doing this. This is a problem. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he calls them out for failing to hold on to their faith. And the list goes on as you read all of Paul's letters. You'll see he is, does not hesitate to correct when he sees a problem. And we can follow that example. But we need to do it gently and with the goal of restoration. But not to, to judge and expel, not with bitterness and anger and malice, not that we want to hurt someone, but our goal needs to be to restore them. And that's what he says. He says they, that in verse 14, he says so that they feel ashamed. And that word there, ashamed, might not be the best way to put it there, but that has the sense of being restored back, that they would see what they've done and then want to be restored back to the position they were in. It's a little bit like, uh, uh, like repentance in turning away and coming back, but, uh, but it has a meaning of invert, turn over, turn around, to go in the other direction. And so sometimes, we have to take that bold step in love and with the heart that wants to see people restored to correct them and get them back on track. So Paul concludes his letters in verses 16 to 18 with an encouragement for the peace of God to be on them and, Lord, and the Lord's presence and grace to be with them. But he had these three things. He wants them to pray, to work, but not let it become an idol, and then to correct. So we're to follow Paul's example. Can we pray? Can we work? Can we correct? Because that's what he wants us to do. That's what he wanted the church at Thessalonica to do. And these are things that we can be doing as well. And that would be living out the message of the Gospel. Because these three things are all part of what God wants us to do, or what Jesus has asked us to do with our lives. This isn't everything that Jesus wants us to do, but it's part of it. And so we can do these three things as a step towards living out what God wants us to do. To pray for one another. To ask others to pray for us. To work hard. And to correct when necessary. Living it out is so important. Others around us might not agree with the Gospel. But we should never let them say we weren't living it out. When they look at us, they might not say, I don't agree with, with that person and their beliefs. But they're living it out day by day. And like I say, it might, they might not agree. But we don't want them to say, you know, that person, they're a Christian, but I don't even see it in their lives. And that would be a problem if we're not living it out, if we're not walking the walk and talking the talk. And so, this is what Paul was encouraging the, the church at Thessalonica to do. These are the th some of the things that we can be doing in our life as well. Let's pray. Father, You've given us much to do. You've set before us tasks. You've, you've given us challenges. Words to speak. Words of encouragement. Words of correction. We need to pray 
We need to pray for others. We need to work hard and not be lazy or idle. And Lord, we need to love You, love our neighbors, ourselves. Lord, help us to do these things. That we would be uh, walking the walk and talking the talk. We would be living out what You have asked us to do. Living out our faith. Living out the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to do that in our life today and every day and with every breath that You give us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.